but I, to my parents' chagrin, am not a urologist. Is that even the right one? I think, um, uh, yes. I'm going to say yeah. yes. I'm also in the industry, mate, so you fucked asking me. <laughs> Everybody and welcome to Last First Day, the podcast where I, Billy Gleason, lead guests from all over the entertainment industry back through one more perfect day of school. Why? Well, their schools happen to have reached out and told me that these people were technically one day short of graduating. I know, rubbish. However, due to my magical powers in the space of about 45 minutes to an hour, or maybe just a bit longer this week, but for good reason, I can get them all graduated through the Last First Day Academy, and it's like nothing ever happened. Now, if you've joined us before, well, aren't you just the best? And I've got a little gold star for you, because you know exactly how the format goes. But if you haven't joined me before, well, welcome in, and you're more than welcome to go and check out some of the old episodes so you know how this goes. We've had unbelievable guests from Rebecca Lowe with the NBC Sports Premier League coverage, Will Buxton from Formula One and Drive to Survive, Brian Stack from Conan, and Late Show with Stephen Colbert, A New Girl, and Parks and Rec, and all these other amazing shows. And I've got a new amazing show to add to the list and a new amazing person to add to the list this week. This week, I'm going to talk to an Emmy-winning writer in the world of Late Night. I'm going to talk to an Emmy-winning writer in the world of HBO, and I'm going to talk to an Emmy-winning writer in the world of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Now, as a quick disclaimer, there is a small portion of the podcast you will hear that was taped a couple of weeks after this original taping because, if you're not aware, there is a huge Writers Guild strike going on right now that is affecting this industry, so we did catch up about that, but I let you know exactly when that happens in the middle of the podcast. So, without further ado, this is the last first day of Liz Hines. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the Last First Day podcast. My guest today is a comedian and Emmy-winning writer. You may know from her time on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. She has worked all over the TV comedy industry, including at Chris Gethard's show and The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, where we first met. It's a pleasure to be reunited with her, and it was a no-brainer to get her on the podcast today. Liz Hines, how are you, my friend? Billy, I am so great. You just made me feel so special with that intro. Thank you. <laughs> How did um, I make you feel special? It's all things you've accomplished. I don't know. You just said them in a really nice, life-affirming way. So thank you. <laughs> when the Mark Twain Prize comes along, I'll happily do that intro as well, <laughs> my friend. Not to put too much pressure on your shoulders, but we speak a little bit about some of your experiences to this point. You're currently over at Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. As we speak, how far into this new season are you? Yes, that's a good question that I should know the answer to. I think there have been five episodes so far, right. so weeks into it. Five episodes and already a couple of hiatuses. So. <laughs> and you've been there, is it two years, three years? How many years now? It's almost three years, which is insane because before that, as you said, we were working together on Late Show and it was in the middle of COVID, like still mm. like pretty scary COVID. It was May 2020 and it was just one day saying goodbye with you, I believe personally set up a little like bye-bye Zoom, which was so nice, but it was just seeing all my friends and then Slack email everything immediately deactivating, which I get, that's the rules. And then the next morning, just logging on to another Zoom with complete strangers. Mm -hmm. And I think it took us about a year to get your personal items back to you after that yes, fact, because we shut everything was. down, but kept your items at your desk and made sure you were not allowed to access them until yes. someone turned around and said, is that someone's stuff? I was like, oh, Liz, <laughs> right. God, she probably wants a scarf back because it's it getting old again. My, um, all the really nice container store stuff that I ordered with CBS's money. Um, <laughs> not to rat you out, but... If I'm not mistaken via your social media, you've only just started going into the office, even though you've worked over it last week tonight for three years, have you not? Yes. And even started is generous. Like it, they have a very um, flexible policy, right. which I'm very grateful for. It's we don't have to go in, mm -hmm. but I do find it helpful to go in just for mental health and socializing reasons. I cannot write when I'm there. I don't think I will ever be able to write in a room with other people because this is my only actual like 
regular accredited paid writer job that I've ever had. And mm. most of it was alone in my apartment, like having regular breakdowns all the time. Yeah. So that's the only way I'm going to be able to write forever. I think I only go into the office to hang out and I am a distraction at best. So <laughs> I don't, I will not be going in that much, but I did go in my first morning commute in three years and I was 90 minutes late, but I didn't get any work until right when I sat down. So that felt it was fine. Where in the world were you coming from that you were 90 minutes late? I know in New York that can mean you lived about 20 blocks away, but Greenpoint to the Upper West Side. So it was not it wasn't close, but it was not an excuse. It just took a longer time than I remembered to get out the door. I don't know how people like have children and commute and drop them at school. It seems hard. <laughs> you discussed that this is your first staff writing job on a TV show, but of course you have comedy writing experience to this point. What outlets did you use? How did you write comedy and perform before getting over to last week tonight? I used to use Twitter more than was probably healthy. And it was definitely a different site than it is now. Yes. I don't know what happened. <laughs> Some big change happened and it is barely usable now. It's what TikTok is now. People just keep reinventing the same. It was like TikTok, except you didn't have to like look hot. So that was really useful. I used to do stuff on there and the writers at Late Show were really good about like amplifying other staff members who were interested in writing. And I feel like they were very encouraging, like through that medium where they could be. And I did a little bit of stand up around the city. I did more in college, mm. but it was a very easy room in college. Like, I don't really feel like I cut my teeth on anything because it was just jokes about the dining hall would always kill. And it was, it was really fun. And, you know, my friends would come and it was nice, but it wasn't like the New York comedy scene is going to grind you to dust. Like it was pretty easy to kill in that room. Yeah. Was it a culture shock when you moved to New York and tried your hand. I remember for myself, it was frying pan into the fire. Yes. You've definitely done more stand up than I have around the city, but I remember the biggest shock being like, I hadn't been nervous really before. Mm. And then all of a sudden it would be, I used to work at a bar that did a lot of like live performance. I was not hired as a performer. I was the hostess right. that tell people like they're full and they'd be like, fuck you cunt. And I'm like, Oh wow. No one's called me a cunt before. Um, okay. So that was actually more cutting my teeth than the stand-up for sure. Mm -hmm. But sometimes they'd be like, does the host just want to get up and do five minutes at this little like fun cabaret show we're doing? And I just loved and respected them so much mm -hmm. that I was very nervous to even do five minutes in front of these people that I just thought were so, that were so talented and, but they were always so nice to me, but I, that was the biggest difference that I felt so nervous and was just like, everyone here is so baseline. So good. Mm. It made me realize like, you know what? Performing is really fun. And this is still the attitude that I have towards it. But it's like, I get everything I need out of writing. Hello, listeners. It's Billy and I'm breaking the fourth wall on you. This isn't an ad because no one wants to pay me yet. But if you are hearing my voice right now, it is to tell you that this is the point in the podcast where Liz and I caught up two weeks after the original recording so we could talk about the Writers Guild strike that is going on right now here in 2023. So Liz, it's been a busy week for you. It's been a busy week for a lot of writers, but in a very, very different way in this industry. To the layman who might not be in the television industry, can you explain what on earth is going on right now? Absolutely. So for the past couple of weeks before the strike was called, our negotiating committee, which is a group of people from Writers Guild East and West, basically go out to LA and for weeks they're negotiating with the AMPTP, which is the Alliance for Motion Picture Television Producers. And it's a group of basically all the old cable networks plus the new streamers sort of voluntarily coming together as this coalition and negotiating as a group to try to come to a deal with the guild. This is the first time that like streamers and broadcast people have been negotiating together in that group. So it's sort of the guild versus that group of people. And our team worked really hard, got a very fair set of proposals. The union agreed to those proposals. And as they got a couple of weeks into negotiation, we took a uh, strike authorization vote, which is basically if we can't come to a deal by midnight when our industry-wide contract expires, does the union's membership give us the authority to strike? And we had the most turnout we've ever had. And it was 97.6% yes, I believe. So overwhelmingly, people knew 
These are very reasonable demands. If they're not met, we're going to go on strike. Not only were our demands not met, but there's a, a sheet basically that the union has released that was our proposals on one side. And on the other side, it was the AMPTP's counters to them. Half of that other side is basically blank because half of the studio's response was no respond, failed to counter. They did not even counter to over half of the 15 point demands that were listed on this sheet. So it was pretty egregious. And on top of refusing to counter, sometimes they did counter with things that were pretty offensive. Um, One was uh, that's been getting a lot of attention is the establishment of a day rate for comedy variety writers. So that would affect someone like me who works on late night. This would be whether you were on streaming or broadcast, it would affect you. Our contract's already very short at about 13 weeks, could be shortened even more to a single day. So you would be able to get fired at any point. You'd have to wait to hear if you were coming back the next day. And even though right now they've stipulated that that would only be for comedy variety, it would, of course, eventually transition to every writer. Mm -hmm. And they just want the gig economy to extend to writing as well. They see that it's been a career that has sustained people for a long time, that we've got a really strong union that has saturated the entire industry. And we make a really popular product that is worth billions of dollars. And when we asked for our fair share of that pie, they said, not only can you not have it, we are going to chip away at the little stability that you do have that you fought for for a really long time. Does it at all seem like some of those counters were regressive? Not only did they not even come to what you were asking for, they were actually kind of making it even worse than it already was. Absolutely. We kind of thought going in, let's come to a reasonable negotiation for the way the industry looks now. We're very realistic about how things have changed. Let's go together forward from here in a way that makes sense for everyone. And they didn't want to hear that because Mm -hmm. we already have terms of employment for TV. We already had minimums. We've had contracts for like 60 years. And now that TV has moved to streaming, it's basically just moved over there. They're trying to act like the labor that goes into it isn't exactly the same. And it is exactly the same. You don't write worse for a streamer. You don't work less hard. Mm -hmm. You don't work shorter hours. Mm -hmm. But one thing on what you're saying about making it even worse, uh, Carol Lombardini, who's head of the AMPTP in these negotiations, there's a quote of hers going around that is pretty damning. And it says, writers should feel lucky to have term employment. Mm -hmm. So this isn't the guild kind of catastrophizing about these terms. It's been pretty explicitly stated that their goal is to just annihilate term employment. There are a couple of points that I really want to hone in on because they've sort of come out as the biggest talking points, even though there are a lot of small nuances to this. The first one is the money side of things, which is the one that sounds the ugliest because people are going to turn around and say, well, those who are striking just want more money. They're just being greedy. My understanding is not necessarily that. It's not everyone saying they want more money. It is them saying they want their fair share of the money in this new world of TV and the streaming services. Is that right to say? Exactly. That's Mm -hmm. exactly it. Because if you look at the numbers, streamers, which were first floated when they first started as, um, we can't possibly pay the guild minimum for these. They're an experiment. They're just a little technological experiment. We don't know if it's going to work. They have helped balloon these companies' profits by billions over the past decade. But overall, writer pay has actually declined by about 23% over the past decade. And it's not just the issue of we want our fair share of the pie, because that is part of it. We do want a higher minimum rate overall to reflect the labor that we contribute to that ultimate final project, which is worth billions. Mm -hmm. But people are also paid, even if that minimum rate is good, people are being asked to stretch it for so long between projects because there's so much free development work that's happening. So you might see someone's paycheck and think, well, that's great. What are you talking about? If that's the only project they work on all year, it's actually not sustainable when you break it down like that. So people are being asked to do a ton of free development work on some stuff that might not even make it to air. And so then you don't even get to see anything after the fact, or it makes it to air and the writer is not brought along as part of the production process. Mm-hmm. Writers have become very siloed off from production and editing, even though writing happens at every stage of production. Mm-hmm. Studios don't want to continue to pay writers for the entirety of a project. So we get kind of cut off at the knees 
before a project can even get going. One other big point I want to talk about. So we talked about the money side of it. You mentioned the AI side of it because the AI side of it is mm-hmm. another big thing that's been put up in lights and a lot of people turn around and saying, well, that's just the nature of the beast. Machines are coming to take people's jobs. Sorry. What has <laughs> been asked for when it comes to the AI side of things? So we are basically saying that anything that you write has to actually have come from a person. Right. Just basically you cannot start greenlighting scripts that were written by a robot and then hire someone for a day rate to come punch it up and then send them on their way. And they have no intellectual ownership over that property. Things like that. Very baseline, very reasonable demands. I've had a few messages over the last week from people who are early starting out in the game, newer to the business who are starting to despair because the industry already felt very inaccessible to them. And now it sort of feels more inaccessible because a lot of shows are shutting down and a lot of shows are not hiring. So what is your hope for the future for those folks or what, what positivity can you maybe share with them? I'm going to start by saying that that fucking sucks and there's no nice way to spin the fact that anyone trying to break in here and then this happens right when you're starting out is extremely shitty and i'm not going to try to sugarcoat that i really feel for anyone in that position because i know what it's like to be hitting a brick wall over and over again and i didn't even have to go through a strike when i was first starting out so i can't imagine how shitty that feels i will say that my hope is that if the guild can hold the line here it can set a precedent for minimizing the exploitation of all entertainment workers for a long time because no one is more exploited than the people first starting out that energy you have when you're really green the hunger and drive and ambition that you bring executives love that they will wring you dry they will pay you the absolute minimum that they can they will work you to the bone and they will say you should be grateful you should be grateful and it's the same, that same, you should be grateful to be here argument that is being told to the writer build as well. I believe a certain executive used the words that he hopes the writers will just return due to their love of the work. Did he not? Exactly. That is what we're supposed to accept. We're supposed to value the opportunity more than our own dignity and our own worth. Mm-hmm. And that is true. You keep getting told that no matter how far you are in your career. To share a quick story of my own coming into this industry, many times you were sort of told you need to do these things to get ahead. And when I was starting out in the game was when my internship was unpaid. I know they still exist out there, but there are a lot less. I moved to a city where I couldn't afford an apartment. I was sleeping in my car for the first three weeks of my internship. It was a tough time and you sort of expected that was going to change soon. When that ended, I went over to my bartending job and was sort of bouncing between bartending jobs and TV jobs, was doing both to kind of pay the bills. Then I got into a career where I was traveling a lot more and having to travel for the job to other major cities across America, I had to travel myself. So I had to pay for my own way to go there to be a PA so I wasn't what making much fuck? money. So I wasn't making much money off of it because they were only hiring locally. Now those bosses looked after me very well there because they knew the circumstances were shitty. And so they did everything in their power to make things better. But there were certain gigs I took where I made next to no money because the flight was so expensive and they couldn't pay me enough to be there. And The further along I've gone in this game, the more I have found it isn't just going to change because you have waited it out. It's not going to change because you have finally reached an age or a title in this industry where suddenly everyone's going to turn and say, you know what? I respect you. I'm going to pay you what you're worth now. I respect you. No, Mm-hmm. No one's going to do that. So I think asking for that level of stability so that people can plan out whether they maybe have a family, have a home, have a car, can go on a vacation, can plan a trip, can do stuff with their family. I don't think that's too much to ask now, is it? 
I agree with you. I don't think it's too much to ask for at all. No, I don't think so at all. Mate, this was a very serious conversation. I'm very glad that you were willing to have it with me and open up the conversation to the people who might be listening to the podcast, because I do think there's a lot of people who might not know what is going on. What can people be doing to support those who are striking right now? I'm so glad you asked. If anyone listening lives near a picket line, they are open to everyone. Being on strike sucks and I wish it wasn't happening. It's way harder than my old job, which I love that I hope I can go back to. This is a physically taxing and I don't like it. <laughs> but you're not supposed to be walking. You're not supposed to be outdoors. I'm supposed to be hunched over a computer for 10 hours a day. This is that's my natural state. But if you live near a picket line, um, anyone can come. It's not just for writers. There's people's families have been coming. Other workers have been coming. Um, from other unions of all sorts, laborers from every industry, um, but also just like fans have been coming, which has been really cool to see. Okay. And the energy on the line is better the more people are there. Nobody ever says no to snacks and coffee, but mainly a great thing to do is to donate to the Entertainment Community Fund, because as we've been talking about, a ton of workers are impacted. It's not just us. And for the most part, We've seen really incredible solidarity from all those others, other departments, but there are people who are going to be hurting. And if you donate to the Entertainment Community Fund, I believe it's literally just entertainmentcommunity.com mm -hmm. and you designate for film and television, that is a fund that can be accessed by anyone who works in the industry. So the Writers Guild has its own strike fund that people can apply to. But if you're not in the Guild, we understand that this is a ripple effect and it is a risk for people to stand with us. So people can apply for anything there that they need if you're an entertainment worker, but anyone can donate as well. So WGA leadership has pledged a lot of money to it. And uh, we would love to see more love going that way because it'll help a lot of people. Wonderful. Wonderful. Hello again, listeners. Are your cotton sheets not as breathable as they once were? I'm just kidding. There's still no one who wants to pay me. Just wanted to let you know that was the end of the catch up. And now we're about to get back into the last first day itself. So enjoy the rest of the podcast. But thank you very much to Liz for joining me again and telling us all about that great stuff. Please be sure to support the WGA strike however you can. I do have to get onto a serious topic. It's awkward every single time. I got a phone call earlier this no. week and oh. it was from your high school and I couldn't quite hear it at the other end of the phone. What was, what was the name of your high school? Immaculate Heart Academy. Immaculate Heart Academy. Yeah, we'll get into it. I thought it was the hospital calling me at first, but <laughs> it was your school saying, Billy, I'm so sorry to do this. And I was like, what, how do all these schools have my number? What is going on right now? And they said, yeah, no, we've heard, you know, all these other schools said, yeah, yeah, call Billy because we've had the same clerical error that they've had. I said, you are joking. <laughs> Liz was technically one day short of graduating. I was like, wow. This is an absolute mess that you guys keep doing this. They said, yeah, we don't have the guts to talk to her. She's very hard to get hold of. She's, even though I know she's got a lot of hiatuses over at last week tonight, but she's still not picking up the phone. There's a lot going on. Do you mind? I know you've got the connection with her, bringing her on the podcast and walking her through one more perfect day. And then she's all graduated again and everything's fine. So this is me asking you now, mate, would you go through one more perfect day at Immaculate Heart Academy. Was that what it was called? Yep. Immaculate yep. Heart Academy. With, would you do that with me today? Billy, to answer your question, yes. <laughs> I will accept this gross display of cowardice by my former high school <laughs> by making you be their cousin Greg <laughs> and send you out to do the dirty work. But yes, I will gladly have one more perfect day of high school. She's a company woman, another HBO reference. So let's do <laughs> a last first day with Liz Hines. Liz, you mentioned it. You mentioned the name of the school. Tell us a little bit more about this place. You said you'll get into it. Let's go for it. Yes. So Immaculate Heart Academy, <laughs> IHA, is an all-girls Catholic high school. In northern New Jersey, I wanted to go there and I can't really remember why. I think that I, you could like shadow the school before you went. And I remember really liking it and just being like, yeah, this feels right. Mm. I really liked it. As with most institutions that I have gotten some distance from, I do have 
fair amount of issues with them. However, I personally had a great time there. I had some really fantastic teachers. Um, some of my best friends, I saw them yesterday, like a bunch of my friends from high school. I've oh, lived great. with some of them. The person whose apartment I'm subletting right now mm. is a friend from high school. So nice. I personally had a great time there. I don't know how much you want me to get into the Catholic element of it now or ever, but <laughs> if it's something you don't want to get into, believe me, I want to get into it, but we will find a way <laughs> to get there naturally. Do not worry. So let's be back to what the start of the day looked like before you actually got to the school. Mm -hmm. What did your routine look like? What sort of time did you wake up? What were you having for breakfast? And how did you get to school? I used to wake up very early because mm -hmm. we were a fair distance away from the school and I usually took the bus, but every year it was a conversation of, are there going to be enough kids coming from that town to justify the bus? Wow. So it went back and forth whether or not I had one, but ideally the bus, because my parents both had long commutes and adding this on top of it was torture, but sometimes they had to drive me until I got my license late. And I passed the test. I just didn't do the six hours of driving early enough. So I got it like six months after my birthday. Then I could finally drive myself for the last end of senior year. And that was the best. But normally I would take the bus and it would get me there obscenely early. Like before seven o'clock, I would be at school. So I probably wake up like five, five thirty sometimes, but I would get to school very, very early. And the silver lining of that was that I just needed something to do. And it kind of led to me joining the school's TV studio, which was built like a year before I came. It was very good timing. Mm. I probably would have joined it anyway, but the impetus to get me to go join that was that there was this girl that didn't take the bus with me, but we would both get there at the same time. We were not friends. We weren't enemies. We became enemies. She doesn't know this because every morning she would play. This was a song that was very popular my freshman year of high school. Um, Airplanes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Is it yeah. like featuring uh, Paramore? <laughs> I don't remember. That was Haley Williams. Is it B.O.B.? Was that his name? That sounds right. Yeah. That sounds right. Mm -hmm. Yes. And if you don't remember, it's can we pretend that airplanes in the night sky are like shooting stars? I'm off key. But I was, I was in college <laughs> when that came out. And I promise you, every sorority girl thought they could sing that song. As soon as that came on finger in one ear and everyone thought they could nail that chorus not one <sighs> fucking person it was the most tra it was a horrible song for its time and this girl she used to be there at this is again like 6 30 in the morning playing that song at full volume on her laptop and singing along and she was like new jersey italian girl also thought she could sing it but would also add like a fiona apple affectation to it so it was every morning multiple times in a row we were the only two in the hallway i thought what's open right now like where else can i go that no one will yell at me for being and i can get away from this fucking girl and that was the tv studio so that was the silver lining of the bus I don't think I ever ate breakfast. <laughs> you never ate breakfast. You just, you just Almost went for never. it. No, I, I used to run. And so I would like eat a lot of protein bars, mm -hmm. but I feel like I didn't eat before like 10 AM. You just rolled out your mornings. Yeah. 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 I didn't even drink coffee until like junior year. I didn't like coffee. And then I went to this pre-college program for a couple of days. And I thought, how does everyone do this? You get up so early, you have class, you have homework, and then we're drinking at night. How do people do it? It was like the black and white part of an infomercial. And then someone goes, try coffee. And I thought, oh, I get this now. <laughs> and it's a must for this industry. I know too many people in this industry. They're like, yeah, no, I don't drink coffee. And I don't know how they exist in how? the television industry, even slightly. Like Coffee is the mild one to have if you exist in this industry you know the further you yeah. get i feel like you know i'm on the path to like here here's cocaine to get your day started because you know that's, that's your little breakfast line it's your little breakfast line can you have more than one cup a day of coffee now because i feel like e i can't really anymore easy one, easy how many do you have i'm like a rhinoceros with a sedative dart that was <laughs> meant for an animal much smaller than me you know they it doesn't really work pretty much have minimum two in a day 
maximum two, if this is my annual checkup and I'm talking to my doctor, definitely right. maximum two and only three beers in a week is all I will ever have on my craziest. Of course. You drink socially. I drink a socially. No one says outside of the doctor's office. <laughs> socially, as I am sat unemployed playing PlayStation on my fifth <laughs> one, that's it's socially, I don't know, I feel like I've got this coffee immunity. It's not because of the TV industry. It's actually, this came all the way from my bartending job. When I had a bartending job, my schedule was all crazy off. So whenever I had an off day and was trying to live normal hours, I was just pounding coffee to yeah. try and do that. So coffee was a big, big part of my bartending life. And it kind of spilled in from there. It wasn't necessarily TV that did this to me, but TV's never going to help you if you've got a <laughs> coffee issue. Any substance abuse, no. even since curiosity, this is not. That or if you enjoy it being happily married. I feel like those, those <laughs> two things are likely off the table if you work in this industry. They're going to put those a two present things. parents. Yes. A good friend. <laughs> yeah. So we learned a little bit about the routine, about the time you got up, going into school, getting into the TV studio and what have you. Once you get to school, I like to get the bad stuff out of the way first. Mm. What were the classes that you hated so we can get them a long, long way from your schedule. My perfect day is, is first importantly going to start with that girl being executed. <laughs> it's number one. My least favorite classes, absolutely math. I do not have a mind for it. Mm -hmm. I remember I nearly failed math my junior year and I was good at school. So this was psychologically destroying to me, but there was a certain point I just couldn't do it anymore. And I remember one day, like finally mastering something that I had to work really hard at, like extra help with the teacher after school stuff that I'd never, ever had to do. Just trying so hard to work through fucking algebra. And I finally got a handle on what we were doing. And I came in the next day and the teacher said, OK, today we're going to be learning about imaginary numbers. And I started to cry in my desk. I'm like, I, can't, I can't do this. You can't tell me that what I thought reality was doesn't even apply anymore. I just got fucking tangents or whatever we were doing yesterday. Yep. So we don't like math, any math. It was the class where I realized when your parents and people in your life tell you, you can be anything you want to be. No, I can't. Cause God, if I wanted to be anything that's slightly related to numbers, I'm fucked. <laughs> if I wanted to design rockets and put them on the moon, that rocket is making it about six feet and probably killing 30 people. <laughs> it's not getting to the fucking moon. Were there any other bad classes, mate? Or was math just a big one? As long as that's nowhere near it, you're happy. Yeah, I would say religion was not my favorite. Mm. There was a teacher who made us pass around. Someone I work with made this joke, and I don't remember who it was or I would credit them, but fetus nesting dolls. They have them at like different stages of gestation. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Fetus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not real fetus. It's like a little clay or whatever thing. Mm -hmm. And she made us pass this around and hold it in our hands so we'd understand what we would be killing if we got an abortion. And that was like one of the better things that woman said. <laughs> and this is They're, North New Jersey. Northern, I want to be very clear. Northern New Jersey in like the mid-2010s. <laughs> not... Alabama in 1935. Freshman year, I didn't have to do this, but some of my friends with a different teacher had to read this story called It Happened to Nancy, which is... I feel like I've heard um, of this, but... Yes. It's by the author, I'm using air quotes, of Go Ask Alice. Okay. I say author with those quotes because she claimed that everything that she edited was a found diary from a real teenager and so she presented it as fact. But when you read all of them together, you're like, or be sure that this wasn't written by the Mormon housewife who strangely found all these teen journals. Mm. Her name's Beatrice Sparks. And now it's kind of understood that like she didn't, she wrote all of these, like they're all fiction, but they were like very fear mongering, scare tactic books. And we had to read some of them. And when you're 14 being fed something like it happened to Nancy, which spark notes, um, Nancy goes to a Garth Brooks concert. This is not a real story, but they specified a real performer. <laughs> it was important to Beatrice Sparks that we know this happened on that guy's watch. 
Nancy goes to one Garth Brooks concert. She's 14. Mm -hmm. Um, She meets a boy there. She falls in love with the boy. He drugs her drink. Yeah, she drinks for the first time and is immediately drugged. That's a common theme in every Beecher Sparks novel. Yeah. Because they're not real. Um, She's date raped. She gets AIDS and is dead within two years. (laughs) Same night. Same night. night, All of those things. Instant death. It was asked one time, like, why did she die so quickly? Doesn't it usually take a lot longer? And it's like, well, Nancy had asthma. So uh, that's yeah. why. Mm-hmm. And when you're 14, condition. reading something like that in religion class, you're more a little more susceptible to it. By the time I had a teacher who was giving us stuff like that, I was 17 in senior year. And we were watching Pam Stenzel, who I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure, but she is like a human pit bull who prowls around a stage and says, if you're having sex, you're like a Band-Aid. And every time you rip the Band-Aid, it gets less and less sticky. Like it, she was insane. And she goes, sometimes people tell me that I only talk about this way. And I say it's the girl's responsibility because I don't have any daughters. But if my sons don't respect women, I'll kill them. Like she was a lunatic. Oh, my God. An absolute lunatic. She also said that you would eliminate poverty worldwide if we ended teen pregnancy. <laughs> And at that point, I had enough critical thinking skills to be like, I know that's not true. Right. I know that this is just an adult who you are taught to believe knows stuff, pulling stuff out of their ass. Mm -hmm. And we were going to write a response on that. And at this point, my friends and I are 17, think we know everything, are actually smarter than this woman. And we write these like scathing responses to what she said. Teacher collected them. And the next day she goes, so... Thank you for all your responses. We were going to go through and read them together. And she goes, I'm so glad that this brought out serious, critical thinking and emotions from people. We never read them. And she stopped showing it. Wow. At least for a couple of years, she stopped showing it. And then the year after we graduated, I saw an episode of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver about sex education and they featured that woman no way. in a piece that was like how fucked up is sex education mainly in these southern states with really really conservative lawmakers but it was happening also in new jersey and that was real nice confirmation that like oh my god i was right like adults are not always right about this stuff they are very often full of shit yeah. and we were right to question them oh my god anyway <laughs> we talked about the bad stuff Math's going nowhere near the schedule. Religion's going nowhere near the schedule. But let's talk about the good. We're kind of going to go through one by one if we can. What is going to be that first class that starts your day? First class that starts the day. Now, this is going to be a curveball because I don't like math, but I wouldn't mind starting off with like a bio class. Because I liked bio and I had really good teachers. Because unlike math... I saw a real practicality to it. Like it made sense. I understood how to apply it. I wasn't that good at it, but I remember loving learning about like the renal system, all the valves in your kidney. I just, I still remember how to draw the little diagram of the renal system. It just made sense. But I, to my parents' chagrin, I'm not a urologist. Is that even the right one? I think, um, uh, yes. I'm going to say yes. I'm also in the industry, mate. So you fucked asking me. (laughs) You said teachers. Was there a specific teacher you wanted to shout out? One that really made biology worthwhile? There was one, our freshman year, we were taught by this man, Mr. Harold, RIP. He just passed last year. He was so old when we had him and he taught like well past the age he needed to for retirement. Like he did it just for the love of the game. He would call everybody like his little speedy pies. He was just like everybody's grandpa. It wasn't, it wasn't weird. I do have to clarify. <laughs> I knew I, like say old guy in a Catholic school. Like it really was fine. <laughs> you said it I out think. loud and you're like, wait, 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 wait. Can't can't say that. I can't capture how cute it was. He was a very sweet man and a really good teacher. And then in my junior year, I had a guy named Mr. Mac who sounded, his voice sounded like Fozzie Bear. And I mean that as a huge compliment. He was a very warm man. He just made anyone feel like they could be good at this. Mm. Whereas math felt so unattainable for right brain idiots like us. Mr. Mac just made it very accessible. And everyone did like really well on the the big test you take at the end. Everyone Mm. from his class did really well, which I think is a testament to him. So biology starting out the day, it could be with Mr. Harold, it could be with Mr. Mac, either way, you're enjoying it. If that started out your day, did you have any sort of break in your day before you get to like a lunch 
And what did that yes. look like? We had something called locker break, which I don't think was common for other schools in the area. It was at like 1025 or some crazy time. The bell would ring and it would be like mini lunch. And there were these cookies that would be sold in the cafeteria and they just called them locker break cookies. And I think their main appeal was that they were underbaked. They were great. I had so many of them, but they were basically just dough. Right. And we never had a salmonella outbreak or anything. Salmonella. I just found out I've been saying that word wrong. And now I said it wrong again. It's salmonella. It's not like the fish. <laughs> yeah. After you've just talked about your love of biology and sciences, <laughs> I just figured this thing out. Mr. Harold, What did they do to your part. renal system? I don't remember <laughs> renal system. The Amanella, we never had an outbreak, but we had these really mushy cookies that people would eat. And it was like 15 minutes and it was just to break up the morning, but it was, it was snack time. It was snack time for people who were supposedly launching into adulthood, but it was necessary. I still, if I'm up early, I will have to eat around that time to this day. I feel you because we had that the same thing at my school where there were these three hot trays for break where one was pizza, but it wasn't pizza. It was like half a baguette with canned tomatoes and melted cheese on top of it and so oh, much yeah, butter so dripping sorry. on it. I'm so sorry. What is a canned tomato? Canned tomato. Canned oh. <laughs> <laughs> It's canned tomato. Canned tomato. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Sorry. The accent Sorry, is really that an American? Yes. Can you say that in American, please? <laughs> Sorry, remind me where your boss is from. So we <laughs> that's what we had, and it was dripping with butter. Like this was not pizza, oh. but they were great for no reason. Mm -hmm. They didn't taste like pizza at all. I'd probably, you know, throw up if I had one now, but at the time, oh amazing. And then there would be sausages, just straight up sausages that you could have, and then there was toast. And the toast was like, it was toasted with a little dab of butter that was probably about the size of a 2P coin that they chucked in the middle of it. And that was about done. So you basically either have the pizza or if you were a, bit, a little bit cheaper, like I was, get a toast and a sausage and you would sort of have, you know, folding your piece of toast around the sausage and basically have a little sausage sandwich for yourself that had... No, it was exactly what you expect from British food. Absolutely, I was going to say, it's not a strong nonsense. showing. It's not a strong showing. But the line down the fucking hallway for well, yeah, sausage and toast. It was all we fucking had. It really was. God, it was oppressive. But that was our break. That was our break. That's just like if, if Charles Dickens ran a cruise, that that would be the buffet. Those three meals. But it's it's again, you associate it with this like break at a nice happy childhood time in your life so it's the best thing in the world if you were to do this again you would still have those locker break cookies you got to do it right i would okay. i would i would get them from jerry the lunch lady nicest lady in the world <laughs> i would get the cookies from her love a good lunch lady we had great lunch ladies at my school as well they were a real gateway into what society was gonna be they were so inappropriate they were just, they didn't act like teachers at all. The lunch yeah. ladies were just the people that talk with no filter around they're you. They're their own breed. You're like 15 years old coming back in on a Monday and you go up to the lunch ladies and they go, like, all right, Billy, how was your weekend? It's like, nice. It was fun. It's like, do you pull any girls? And it's like, what? It's like, do you pull any girls? I know you, you're out on the pool, aren't you? All right. Trish, oh you want to calm down? I'm 15. Now what you're like, fantastic. we'll get into the proper lunch in just a bit, but now we're moving on to class two. So we've got class one, we've got mm -hmm. biology, we've got the break with the, the locker break with the cookies. Now we're moving into the second best class. What is it, Liz? So I think my next class, which I did usually have after locker break because I was late to it a lot, Spanish. Wow. Okay. I think that's the first foreign language that's come up on the podcast. Really? Yeah. Interesting. It's mm -hmm. all because of the teachers I had. I really liked my high school Spanish teachers and I am not fluent, which I feel like is really common for particularly American students. Like, yeah, I studied this language for 14 years. Uh, como te amas? Like, it's <laughs> really embarrassing. Our freshman year, we had a Spanish teacher who, did you ever have a teacher who didn't have a permanent classroom? And so they'd have to like move yeah. around. And yeah, I always felt bad for them because it felt like everyone else had an established home, but not you, Nomad. You're going to go wherever we put you. 
Yes. And it's so clear that all of the teachers who'd been there longer just like pulled rank on them. And yeah. it doesn't matter if you're older than some of them, like you're new. So you could hear her like rolling backpack coming from really far away. Oh. Every single day. It's such a minor prank, but in like what felt like a very draconian school, even though it wasn't. One day she was late to class. She was like significantly later than she should have been. And we kept waiting and waiting and waiting. And I feel like the rule is 20 minutes go by, you can kind of bounce. Right. It's like the unspoken rule. I think so. Even though everyone starts going around the room, it's like, I mean, it's a five minute rule, right? You know, you sort yeah. of, yeah, every, every, it keeps going lower and lower each time. Five minute rule, and we're all gone, right? Like everyone's going to do it. Everyone's going to do yes. it at once. Yes, we right? all do it. Yeah. We, it can't find all of us if we all do it. It's a real lesson in like solidarity from a young age. Yeah. Um, but we, I want to say that we gave her like 15 minutes. It may have been 45 seconds. And then we decided, okay, we're going to like, do something and we set the clock forward 40 minutes okay and put it back on the wall and then we finally hear the rolling backpack coming down the hall it's like okay everybody be cool everybody be fucking cool <laughs> and we sit and she gets in and she's like oh do you siento mucho i'm so sorry i'm so late and she looks at the wall and goes what oh, what like this woman is not old enough to have symptoms of dementia but old enough that like I would be worried if I thought I'd suddenly lost 40 minutes unaccounted for. Right. And so she thinks we have like five minutes of class left and she's oh. just like, I okay, I guess we, um, here's the homework. Oh. By the way, we were 14. It's not like we could go drive or leave early. We just going? wandered the halls like rats <laughs> just released. And she obviously realized very quickly that class was not actually over. <laughs> and she couldn't prove that anyone had done it. But the next day she was like, so everyone have a good break yesterday. <laughs> and it's just looking around the classroom and everyone to their credit did not break. It was like in a Christmas story when the kid is stuck outside on the pole and she's looking around just waiting for people to break. Nobody ratted us out because it's like, hey, we got you 40 minutes to do nothing. Yeah. You're yeah. welcome. That's that's really smartly done. Do you have was that person a great teacher? Huh? She was a pretty good one. She wasn't my favorite. Um Who was a great one. My favorite was this woman, Senora Roldan, who was just like the loveliest she was like Miss Honey. She was just like a cartoonishly kind teacher mm -hmm. and everybody liked her. And her classroom used to get way too hot. She would keep it very hot. I don't know if she had like a temperature issue, but, <laughs> um, and she had a very nice, like lilting voice and people would fall asleep in her class all the time oh, and she'd never get mad at them. I only uh, ever really did that. I felt, I felt asleep in classes all the time, but it would just be <laughs> certain classes. I was more prone to it because I remember where I had English. It was always a warm room. It was always really mm -hmm. warm. But you know, that warmth where it's it's not too hot. You're not sweating, but it's right at that comfortable level. It's where like you're cloying. Just, yeah. Yeah. You'd always think that as a kid you were being super discreet about like, you know, forcing <laughs> your head head on the table, whatever. And you just have to think the teachers didn't give a fuck really because there's yeah. no way you were actually hiding it book up like oh yeah i always read my book with it like stood on the table at a like, 90 degree angle that's how i it's just comfortable for me miss i was a good kid i was kind of a smart ass but i i liked school i again was an only child for a long time and then became an oldest daughter so i i liked like the approval of adults. Yeah. But I think maybe I also like resented that I wanted it so much. And so I would be kind of a smart ass, but usually in a way that would never quite get me in trouble. And then my first detention came on the last day of our junior year. Part of our uniform was that you would have these really hideous brown tie shoes. They had to be brown and they had to be tie. It was so dehumanizing were they like, like was, did you have to buy them from the specific school store or did they just have no. to be brown shoes with it? okay the rest of it had to be from the school store but you could pick whichever brand of truly hideous pair of shoes you and your, whatever your heart desired i think it was just like really trying so hard to make us never get laid never <laughs> like i think that that's the only reason i can think of really hideous shoes and then when you were a senior the big privilege was that you could wear any kind of brown shoes that you wanted. So you could wear like slip on Ugg moccasins or just something like slightly more normal, still pretty ugly, but it was a big rite of passage. So on the last day of junior year, my friends and I 
Um, it, it was my idea. I said, let's throw our shoes off the roof. I used to go up to the roof a lot. It was uh, never locked. And we used to go up there and like order Chinese food after school and hang out on the roof. We hung out after school a lot, sometimes just waiting for like a later bus or because we were doing sports or our parents were working. And even when we could drive, we were just in the habit. We'd like hang out in room 216 with the cool English teacher and communications teacher after school. And so we were very familiar with the roof. We'd never gotten caught, never gotten in trouble. Felt like we were entitled to roof access at this point. So I said, let's go throw our shoes off the roof. And we were a little too excited and started running through the hallways, like screaming, drew attention to ourselves, make it up to the roof. This one teacher who none of us even had saw us going up the stairs. And this was a teacher who always had her hair perfectly blown out. She would always wear mini skirts, stockings, and huge heels. And she had a nickname among some students that was not very nice. It was like a not nice word for a sex worker that we call this woman who just honestly, like she was, the kids would say now today that she was serving cunt. That's what they would say. Um, I won't say one of the words, but I will say she was serving cunt. Yeah, I guess there wasn't a lot of logic there, but... (laughs) she followed us it is the outfit is important for what happened next two of my friends were not fast enough and they hid behind the doors made it look like the doors to the roof were propped open but you could still see their legs behind the doors so they're instantly caught then this woman in this outfit scales the ladder coming up to the roof and my friend and i have our shoes we did not actually throw them off the roof but we were dancing like where are the others what's happening and i see this perfectly blown out blonde head of hair appear with like a snarling face over the roof she goes get down i'm like oh shit okay (laughs) we go down it was the last day of the school year we get brought down to the principal's office to like the dean of discipline who was a cool lady and she sat down there and was very serious we waited for so long to see her which was you know a torture tactic to like build up the anticipation oh my god what's going to happen are we going to get expelled or what are they even going to do we can't serve detention but we did they made it so we go into her office and she's like girls do you have any idea how expensive the solar panels we put up there were they thought that we were going to damage the roof. What the fuck? Safety was so secondary. <laughs> like we just put solar panels up there. God damn it. <laughs> Turns out this woman was putting on a really good front because when she talked to our parents, she's like, yeah, we got to do something, but it's fine. <laughs> it's, I'm not really mad, but got to make they sure they do it again. move all the desks in the art room to the opposite end of the art room. It was actually kind of backbreaking labor. When we came back in September, they were flipped back to the other side. Again, psychological warfare. Detention for adults is uh, prison. Yes. Which is yeah. By definition, I believe it is. Yeah. Markedly worse. Let, let's Definitely say worse. Yeah. There should be something more like detention for kids yeah. for adults. Yeah. Hey, you did something bad. Just go move those tables to the other side of the room and we'll yeah. call it square. It's going to suck. We're going to move them back and it's going to make you mad, but you will you won't go to the roof again. Yeah. You did go to the roof again a lot. <laughs> anyway, mate, outside of the detentions and we've moved on into the lunchtime portion of the day. So what were you having for lunch? Big question. Did you bring? Did you buy? I usually brought lunch. I had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich almost every day for probably 14 years. Wow. By choice, that was actually the desire? I don't think it really started out by choice, but then I, I know, I guess at some point it became choice. I really liked them. I just didn't get sick of them for a very long time. Yeah. Almost always, that's what I would bring. When I started doing sports, which I was bad at but did a few of in high school and you just you're so hungry mm-hmm. you're so and you're a guy so it was probably even worse for you but it just you're so fucking hungry oh, as a teenager yeah occasionally i would buy food i remember there were these quesadillas i still ate meat at the time there were these little like cubes of chicken in this quesadilla and they were just the cubiest cubes too square they are ever too eaten. square <laughs> It is not a, like, so diced, this chicken. I loved it. That was, (laughs) if that was the hot lunch, I would, like, borrow money from my friends. I didn't have, like, a debit card. I had no way to get cash until I was an adult. 
Like I just yeah. never had any money as a kid. My parents would give me like a 20 and I would try to stretch it for like two months. <laughs> Thankfully there wasn't that much of an occasion for me to have to buy my own stuff, but I wanted those quesadillas every time they were out. Oh, and Jerry, the lunch lady would be like, it's quesadilla day. I knew I was going to see you. Mm-hmm. That was the only lunch that I tried to buy whenever it was there. It was truly disgusting. So are you bringing your lunch then in the ideal world? What, what I would think you do? I'm going to bring, I never have them anymore, but I think that I'm going to bring a peanut butter sandwich with that like perfect yeah. ratio of peanut butter to jelly. And was it you that made or did your mom make for you? I started making it probably sometime in grade school because nice. it was very easy and it made me feel accomplished. Mm-hmm. Um, but my dad liked to make them. I think today, if I asked my dad, like, will you make me a peanut butter jelly sandwich? He would be happy to make it. Heck yeah. My dad never cooked, never has, never, never will. <laughs> well, I've seen, cooked. I've seen him, I've seen him try and it's rough to watch, but my mom is the one that she almost wouldn't let me. It was so much tender loving care that went into her yeah. lunches that she made. There was a nice little lunch box. Maybe it was a tuna salad that was wrapped up all neat and tidy and put in the box with a nice bag of crisps, a little cereal bar, a piece of fruit put in the box. Oh, and then yes. she would have like a little freezer pack that was sort of around it to keep it cool. But I remember speaking to those other kids in school that were like, yeah, you know, I make my own lunch and I would almost get teased at times that my mom made it for me. <laughs> and I was like, my, my mom would like kick me out of the kitchen. if I. She would take it as the biggest insult if right. I did that, because it would be like, you don't think I'm doing it right. And I'd be like, no, yeah. no, 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 I just don't want you to be going out of your way. And she'd be like, shut up, sit down. I'm, this is, this is just <laughs> this what is I do. This is, this is what I do. This is my art. Get out. Oh my gosh. So you are bringing a lunch of the perfect ratio peanut butter jelly sandwich mm-hmm. is what you're having for lunch. Getting that little bit of sustenance before you have to go into that last class of the day, which is what? English. Miss Rich taught English. I know I compared someone else to Miranda Priestley before, but she was Miranda Priestley, played everything very close to the chest, would never give a compliment once in a blue moon and you would treasure it forever. I remember every vaguely nice thing she ever said to me. It was like ice in the room, but she was a great fucking teacher. So we would, I remember one time we walked into her room and she said to everyone, line up against the wall. No explanation. We lined up to the back of the room and everyone's like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And she puts on a PowerPoint. Like, this is the last thing we're ever going to see. It was actually a really useful exercise. She was just showing us, she was giving us a sample PowerPoint. And it's like, this is how it's going to appear from the back of the room. This is how most people are going to watch a presentation that you give. But every slide should be like, tell me what's wrong with this slide. Whether it was like a weird font thing, something off center, the color is too much or like a factual error. And there was one slide and we could not figure out what was wrong with it. She was making us go down the line over and over and over again. What is wrong with this slide? And it was a poem about violets was something that we were, that was the excerpt that this slide was talking about. And then a purple flower next to it. And we're going over, she's merciless going over and over again. Like, this is really disappointing, girls. This is very disappointing that none of you are figuring out what this is. And we, we're just giving up. We're like, we don't know what's wrong with the slide, Miss Rich. Like, please let us go. <laughs> Bring out the gun if that's what you're going <laughs> to This is torture. <laughs> and she finally goes, like, she's so mad. And she never got that emotional. And she was like, it's a crocus. It's not a violet. That flower is a crocus. <laughs> I want to be clear that like gardening was it's never not, part of this curriculum. Not horticulturalist. That's fucking mad. She was an avid gardener. And I think that was um, the source of the absolute ire there. I would pick Miss Rich because she's, because she's not around anymore. And it would be great to have one more class with her. Oh, even if I was scared shitless. I've never had someone pick a class yet where it's something that actually terrified them, but it was for good reason that yes. they would want. That's really, that's wonderful. So I'm going to have a quick speed through the day to get us to where we are now since we've got most of your day laid out. So here we go. You go to Immaculate Heart Academy, but you start your day waking up early about five o'clock in the morning. You would get the bus, but you'd actually prefer to wait until you got your driver's license, which was a bit later in the game so that you could drive yourself out there to get there at seven o'clock in the morning. There are no fucking airplanes. That girl is nowhere to be seen as you are going into the TV studio that was built just about a year before you came along. So airplane girl is not there. Maths is not there. 
religion is not there, but you are starting the day with biology, with Mr. Harold, calling you sweetie pie as you walk in the door, talking about renal systems and whatnot, and then you're having your little break, you're getting your cookies and your locker break, and after that, you're going into Spanish with Senora Roldan, you may be messing with the clocks just for old time's sake, after that one's done, you're getting lunch, you brought your PB&J along with you with a perfect ratio of PB to J to give you sustenance for the rest of the day. After that, you are going into English with Miss Rich because you want to relive that one last time lined up along the back wall, not knowing what fucking flowers are what. But you have gone through your entire day and you have one last assignment to do. And that is in the great hall, the auditorium of the school, whatever it was called. You're giving advice to the kids of today, whether it is what to do or what not to do. What are you telling the kids of today? First of all, that they should learn how to take notes like you, because that was really impressive. I forgot half the shit I said. So, <laughs> you are an attentive host. You were a writer's assistant as well at some point. You know, you got to take, you're always taking notes. That was just typing. It was pure mechanics. It can't all stay in the head. That's true. I got a gigantic yeah. head though. I might as well use it. <laughs> Do you know, I actually have gone back to my high school once really? to, to give a little, it was part of like a little media panel, like alumni who worked in media. I don't remember everything I said to them. <laughs> One thing that I definitely said to them that I always say to anyone that I give advice to is to understand the value of your time and labor and energy, even while you're very young. You and I have talked about this a lot, how the television industry in particular, but most industries rely on young people or anyone just starting out, anyone new, they don't have to be young, but like anyone entering an industry should just be grateful to be there. And that gratitude is supposed to supersede your desire to be treated fairly, to be Mm -hmm. paid fairly. All of the basic things that workers are entitled to and deserve. Sometimes even like your safety is supposed to not be tantamount to your gratitude. And that is acutely present in the entertainment industry, but also all over. Just the labor of new people is so exploited. Anyone entering something for the first time has incredible value and insight and perspective that cannot just be written off and taken for granted. And it very often is. So I've been lucky that the people I've been like assistance for, which is a very like very demanding job. And you live your life like very closely with another person's and your personal life absolutely takes a back seat to someone else's personal and professional life. Thankfully, everyone that I've been in that position with has never made me feel undervalued or overlooked. They've been extremely grateful and made me feel that my labor had value. Mm. That is not always the case. Sometimes you're one of Scott Rudin's 12 assistants and he's shoving <laughs> you out of a car onto the Triborough Bridge when you try to quit. Yep. And you're supposed to accept that because it's like, put the name on your resume. Oh, yeah. Like he left you on the highway, man. It's mm. not worth it. Nope. So that's definitely one thing I would tell everyone. And the second one, which I don't think I said at the school is, oh my God, chill the fuck out. (laughs) Chill the fuck out. I had a great time in high school as you've beautifully reminded me of during this, but I was so stressed out all the time. I was so high strung. I was so obsessed with getting into this college that I didn't even get into the first time. And I had to transfer in later. (laughs) And I wish I'd just known that it wasn't going to work the first time. You're not going to be fucking good at everything. And you don't have to be being smart as an adult using air quotes. I keep forgetting this as a podcast. (laughs) Um, Being smart is kind of horseshit because you're good at school Mm -hmm. and you're not smart. You're good at school. We teach in a very specific way, particularly in the States. And if you're good at that, that specific method of learning, people are like, they're smart. When you're an adult, you don't have the same goalposts. Maybe if you like make a lot of money or you're a doctor, you probably have to be pretty smart to be a doctor, but smart at science. You can be a dog shit writer (laughs) and be a really, really good doctor. One of them is more valuable than the other. And I'll say it. It's us. It's the artists. Yeah. Laughter, best medicine. (laughs) But that I think is such a, people get hung up on the very codified modes of validation that you get in school. And then I think one of the hardest things as an adult is just keeping yourself happy and content and fulfilled without those demarcators, especially if you were good at them Mm -hmm. and then they're gone. I think it's way more valuable to just learn how to like have some fucking hobbies, learn how to sit with yourself and be happy, learn how to be present and emotionally intelligent and 
develop interests and be interested in other people. Those are the qualities that if you meet someone as an adult might maybe translate as like smart. But even if it doesn't, there are plenty of other more interesting and fulfilling things to be. Some of the smartest people I know, I can't be around for more than 10 minutes because they're exhausting. (laughs) And like, would it kill you to be a little stupider just (laughs) for the rest of our benefits? Those sorts of people that are like, no, 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 I don't own a television. It's like, oh, fucking K. Like, then what are we going to talk about? Literally, (laughs) what are we going to make conversation over? So, mate, with all that being said, with that wonderful advice you have shared with the great students of Immaculate Heart Academy, the advice, just to reiterate it, to understand the values of your time, labor, and energy, so important, and even more important, and I have this in quotes, realizing this is a podcast, oh my God, chill the fuck out. And with that piece of advice capped onto the end of your day, you have officially graduated from the last first day academy i want to congratulate you on completing your last first day my friend thank you so much this feels great it doesn't feel a little sad like all my other graduations it's just happy i'm so glad you were able to join me is there anything you want to plug talk about promote before i let you go my friend i would just tell people come join us on the picket line if you can And I'm going to once again plug the Entertainment Community Fund. And eventually, last week tonight, we'll be back on the air. And if you want to watch it, that's super. (laughs) Support people (laughs) any way you can, folks. Support the Writers Guild out there, the Entertainment Community Fund. Go and look up in all your major cities, wherever people might be picketing. Liz, is there a good website people can look up? Yes, people can go to WGAContract2023.org. And there you'll see a picket schedule as well as a social media toolkit and a lot of other resources to learn about how we got here, what we're doing and how we can all support each other during this. So that is a great resource, WGAContract2023.org. With that, my friend, thank you so, so much for joining me. It was a pleasure to have you on the podcast and a pleasure just to chat with you again. I had so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. And so ends another Last First Day at the Last First Day Academy. Thank you so, so much to Liz Hines for joining me for her Last First Day for the first last time. Join me again next week as we have another fantastic guest from the entertainment industry ready to share their story with you. They're currently getting their timetable together, using all the different cuddled little gel pens that they begged their mum for. Begged their mum for in the middle of WH Smith's. They threw a fit on the floor until mum got them for you after turning around and saying, Billy, get up. You are making a scene. Get up. Sorry, I just blacked out for a second, but I think what I was saying is be sure to go and rate the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, like the podcast, share the podcast with your friends. It means so, so much. Even comment on the podcast and tell us about your most ridiculous school lunch. I want to hear all those stories and more. But until next time, class dismissed. Class dismissed.